Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Mike is in Virginia for Thanksgiving. Uh, Jason's in San Diego. I'm in my office in New York. So if, it, if the sound quality isn't up to snuff, we apologize. We'll be better next week. Um, with that, just a few comments on oil, gas, pricing, and macro. And this affects you know, our chips and our everything going to China, but the lockdowns in China definitely having an impact on the oil market. And we have an important date coming up on December 5th. Theoretically, after December 5th, countries belonging to the European Union cannot import Russian oil unless their pipe connected to the Russian oil is a compromise that was made for Hungary and a couple of the other countries. Um, the other thing that's happening on December 5th is that there is this system that the U.S. Treasury Department has uh, worked on and uh, advocated for, which will be a price ceiling on Russian oil. Russian oil is currently traded about $25 a barrel under Brent. So if Brent is 85, that would be $60. I think the plan is to set the price cap at $60. The idea of enforcing the price cap is that cargoes need to be insured and the tankers need to be insured and the group of seven, European Union, the United States, UK, has told insurers that they will be penalized or fined or something if they insure cargoes or ships that don't comply with this price cap system. Now, the Russians have said that anyone who puts a price cap system in will not be allowed to pick up oil. I don't know whether that's an idle threat. OPEC Plus meets the day before December 5th on December 4th. And as you can see in, the, in, in news feeds, they're talking about possibly increasing their ceiling by half a million barrels for December, or I, I don't know whether they're doing December or January, because to not have disruption in the market with the US and EU trying to impose these price caps and Russia objecting. Um, this is all interesting to me as someone who, you know, has done this for a long time, or from an investment point of view, I don't think it means beans. I think probably nothing will happen. Oil has been slipping a bit because of China demand, concerns about China demand, I guess concern about recessions all over. So I think this is a lot of 
you know, newsfeed. And I don't think it means a whole heck of a lot in terms of what the price of oil is going to do. In terms of natural gas, we have two markets. We have LNG, which got as high as $40, $50 as compared to, you know, when you, gas was selling in the U.S. for 7 or $8. Gas has come down in the near months, so it's down around 6 The impact on the gas price two years from now really hasn't mattered at all. It goes up and down by maybe 10 cents in the 450 range. Gas this time of the year in our country is heavily impacted by weather. Think of U.S. demand as being 90 bees a day, average around the year. Weather can take that because of uh, <clears throat> gas being used not only for power generation, but also for heat in uh, many, many, it's a prevailing home heating fuel, it can take gas demand up, just cold weather can take gas demand up by 15 bees a day. So in when we get into this period of time, December, January, February, March, huge impacts, both the weather forecast and the weather itself on the price of natural gas. Natural gas is stiffened a bit from where it was. It's now back up to, you know, almost $7 on the near month. As I say, the price two years from now, which really impacts what Antero's worth or Chesapeake's worth or EQT's worth, doesn't really move around too much. But of course, the stocks will go up and down with the weather and the near-term price. In Europe, uh, gas storage, LNG, got so full that uh, LNG cargoes were going begging, you know, rather than if, if the December price was like $25, and like the first half November price, it was like $14. So if you could lay your hands on a tanker and just have it steam in circles, you're going to make $10 in MCF for you know, over four or five weeks. Unfortunately, for anyone trying to do that, there weren't any tankers available. And the tanker price got absurdly high, up to like $400,000 a day for near-term tanker uh, LNG tanker rentals. So... What does this all this mean from an investment point of view? It doesn't really mean beans. For those of you who get the eight-pager, what we have been doing, and I, I, reckon, I recommend that everyone gets it. You can get it from Diane. You can get it through uh, Mike and Jason. I'm adding a page every weekend. Uh, I'm up to eight pages. We talked about Walmart, Target, Lowe's, and Home Depot last week. The week before that, we talked about the payment companies, MasterCard, Visa, PayPal. These pages aren't necessarily going to lead Mike, Jason, me, Diane, to investments we want to make, but they will help. And the main focus in these pages is how much free cash flow is a company generating. And for example, last week, it's amazing, but Walmart, which has 600 billion of revenues only generates 5 billion of free cash flow. To take the second largest retailer in our economy, if you go to page four, Amazon had 480 billion of revenue and basically had zero free cash flow because Amazon's CapEx has gone from around 30 up to 65. So if their CapEx normalized, they'd have about 25 or 30 billion of free cash flow. The the free cash flow record in these sheets, and so far as I know, is held by Apple, 
Apple, on a current basis, generates about 95 billion of free cash flow, which is really quite remarkable. The second, I believe, is Exxon. Exxon, at current results, is generating 65 billion of free cash flow, and Chevron, somewhat smaller, is gener- generating 49 billion of free cash flow. In terms of how the, how to value things, Apple. At the time I did the exceeds and did the fight, which was third week of October, was trading at about a 4% free cash yield or an enterprise value, 25 times free cash flow. Exxon, as of the price of last Friday, was trading at seven times free cash flow or 14% free cash yield. I'm going to continue to do these sheets and they will be available. I I caution a couple of cautions on them. First of all, I leave the price at the time I did the sheet. I think that's more interesting rather than updating them every week. Second thing is either judgment that yours truly is making after a careful review of recent results. So when I say Apple's going to have 95 billion of free cash flow, I'm not talking about next year. I'm not even talking about the most recent 12 months. I'm saying after a careful read of the 10Q and recent information about the company, this is where they are on, on a, you know, on a current basis. In terms of what to look for from an investment point of view, this is going to sound naively simple, but I think if something is at a 5% free cash yield, and Apple at uh, 147 was at a 4% free cash yield. If you think the free cash flow can grow 10% a year, that 5% plus 10% is 15%, which doubles your money every five years. That is a reasonable way to think about owning equity. If you take Exxon, where it's already trading at a 14% free cash yield, they will use their free cash flow to pay dividends, which is only a 3% yield, but also to buy in stock. So you, you, you could make a case that, that Exxon is at a 14 or 15% free cash yield, about equivalent to Apple at a 4% free cash yield, if you believe Apple and compound the free cash flow at 10% a year. Exxon, you know, is going to be subject to oil pricing, gas pricing. But remember, they also refine. They also do a lot of chemicals. I think one way to look at Exxon, and I'm not advocating investing in Exxon. I'm not advocating investing in Apple. Apple has lots of significant issues, and Exxon certainly has lots of significant issues. But by looking at a lot of companies, over you know a fairly short period of time, I think it'll be a great way to find our bearings. And I I want to stop and see if Mike or Jason, Mike and I talk about this for 20 minutes every morning. So he and I are up to date. I don't talk to Jason as much, but I want to pause and see if Mike or Jason have any any additional comments or or the possibility they say, well, uh, Hunt has it all wrong. But over to you, Mike, first, and then Jason. So my my main thought on the energy majors is, or I guess I should say something that sunk in over our conversations the last couple of weeks about this, is that 
maybe those energy majors are in a better position um, to, to survive the volatility that the energy markets may have in the future. And that's sort of interesting because it goes back to some of the things you've said about the EMP companies that are that are leveraged that have to sell forward. They can't really take advantage of the spot market premium pricing. So that same sort of corollary applies potentially to some of these wind and solar type projects. So I think that was the only thing I'd add to that is just kind of they're in a unique position because they have pretty good balance sheets. Jason, we're getting you way out on a limb because uh, 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 looking at companies that have 14% free cash yields is not something you've done a whole heck of a lot of. But what, 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 what's your, what's your, what's your reaction to all that? 14% free cash yield, free cash flow yield is, is great. I mean, it all sounds like good rational thinking from the both of you. So I, I don't have anything insightful to add. Um, I'll defer to you on, on energy. You're the, you're the expert. Well, I, I, the best way to answer a question is another question, Jason. What do you think the chances of Apple being able to compound their free cash flow at 10% a year so that by five years from now, their free cash flow, rather than being $95 billion, is like $160 billion? You don't want to doubt them. They've been pretty successful to date. So on the surface, you'd say... It's, it's likely they could do that. My personal thoughts on Apple are, you know, the, their technology is kind of getting stale. They haven't really innovated a lot lately. So I'm kind of waiting for someone to come along and disrupt Apple, but they've got a great money printing machine. So, so in the near term, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that they can achieve that. Mike, any commentary? Yeah, I, so you know, Apple's a company that we know pretty well and we've spent a lot of time with. There are, as with the energy companies, there are some really key risks with Apple, right? There's a there's certainly a regulatory antitrust headwind to Apple's future because Apple's basically betting on a much larger services revenue generation in the future. So things that could disrupt that would be some sort of antitrust regulation that hampers their ability to do so. There are different ways to do that. Some of the things happening in China with the major internet companies there kind of could be seen as a potentially draconian way in which their business could be slowed slowed down if the government decides to take more control over some of the decisions these companies are making. So, uh, I, you know, I think they've got a lot going for them. I actually think, and this might be contrary to your opinion, Hunt, I think that the iPhone has become more of a consumer staple than a, a discretionary item. People are thinking about things to cut. They're going to cut a lot of things before they cut their every other year iPhone purchase. I don't disagree with that. What do you think, Jason? Not to not to derail us into an Apple discussion, but they they take a thirty percent tax using you know, in their services in their services segment. So all the transactions through an iPhone, all the transactions through their App Store have a thirty percent fee paid to Apple, and there's becoming a lot of pushback on that because it's 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 a 
extraordinarily high tax on on the transaction through a system compared to historical. So companies are starting to fight that quite a bit. So I don't know how entrenched the, this their services revenue, how safe it is going forward. Fair point. And just to steal me on that issue real quick, though, I, I agree with Apple's position that charging 30% is fair because when they initially came up with that 30% number, they looked at the markup that somebody would pay like the difference between what maybe if you sell it to Walmart and then Walmart marks it up for that distribution and access to the customer. So I don't think they were wrong in assessing initially, but they are definitely getting a lot of pushback on it. And, and, you know, at some point popular opinion wins. I agree with all of that. Now I have something that we still got about nine minutes left that I'm just fascinated by because it's in the news. And it relates, if, if, if those of you have the eight pages in front of you, uh, it relates to the, the second column on page three. Apple's the first column, Alphabet is the second column. The thing that, that I'm intrigued by is it's hard not to be intrigued by following Elon Musk exploits, including Twitter. And, you know, I may have the wrong number, but I think there were 7,000 employees at Twitter prior to the closing of Musk and Associates owning 100% and becoming a private company. From news articles, it looks like they're going to try to do the work that 7,000 people were doing with 2,000 people. may be a failure, but one of the questions is, is there overstaffing in these tech companies? And Chris Hahn, who's a very successful investor and a bit of an activist, has written letters to Alphabet saying, don't you have too many people? And Alphabet had has currently around $30 billion of free cash flow. Their CapEx has been pretty high recently, I think because they're trying to be competitive with Microsoft and Amazon on having server farms, on building up their cloud business. But I think that Chris Hahn and others like him are not necessarily criticizing the CapEx as much as they're criticizing staffing levels. Why do we go to Jason first? Because Mike and I have already are kind of in agreement that, that in a lot of these companies, it could be that they're doing what they're doing could be done with half as many people. But before we get too far out on a judgment like that, Jason has a lot more recent and relevant experience. So when we look at this six months from now, let's say that Twitter is still going and they're going with, you know, a third of the people that they used to have, what does this all mean, especially for investors in companies like uh, Alphabet or Amazon or, or Meta or other tech companies? Yeah, 50% overstaffed might, might turn out to be pretty accurate. I'm kind of rooting for Elon here. If It's a good experiment to see if Twitter can run with a third of the employees because that is about what they have now. You'll see news reports from former employees saying the system's going to go down within a week after everyone leaves. Uh, my feeling is kind of if, if they've built a system that can't survive a week without human hand-holding, they haven't really done their jobs right in the first place. So I think Elon's going to bring in smart, 
hardworking people to replace some of these people that have left. Um, and we might, I'm hoping we see that the company can function a lot more efficiently with maybe a third of the staff. Um, about Twitter specifically, before, you know, when he announced his, his takeover bid, there were undercover news reporters talking to some of the employees at Twitter trying to gauge how much they do work. And, and a lot of report came out that, you know, they're meeting these people at coffee shops where they claim to be working and they would brag about how little they worked, you know, in the, in the single digit hours per week. So I, I think, I think we'll see Elon and Twitter succeed. I'm hoping that we do. And that will just show that these, a lot of these tech companies probably have tremendous overstaffing. Anything to add, Mike? Um, but since we're on the topic of Twitter, it's not on this topic of overstaffing, but I have a new thesis as to why Elon wanted to buy Twitter. And Jason, we haven't talked about this either, so I'll, I'll go ahead and float it since we're on the topic. So the theory is that Tesla has been working pretty hard on artificial general intelligence, and that's sort of what they've decided is at least some level of that is required in order to properly do self-driving. And my new theory is that he actually bought Twitter because the information contained in Twitter and the discourse is a critical input to building an accurate artificial general intelligence model. Jason, I'm interested to hear either of you have an opinion on that. I, I, I'm not qualified. I'm going to turn it over to Jason. I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm going to revert to being an energy guy. Yeah, I can't shoot that theory down immediately. When Twitter was started, one of the, one of the biggest features of it was called the Firehose. So you could subscribe to getting all of the tweets anywhere in the world all sent to you. And then you could run analysis and algorithms on it and stuff. And and Twitter didn't really monetize it very well, surprise, surprise, and ended up shutting it down. And it, and it was used by a lot of people to do interesting research. So not having access to that anymore, uh, you can probably go back and, and maybe Elon was doing projects with it in the past and he says that's a good resource of data and, you know, buying Twitter gets some access to it. So can't dismiss it off the cuff. Right. I'd be very tempting now to get into a discussion of Tesla, which I don't know quite what the logic was when I was doing page three, but the three companies covered on page three are Apple, Alphabet, and Tesla. And I think rather than go further into uh, Tesla now, the three companies I'm going to work on, or actually four companies this weekend are the software companies. We have spent a lot of time earlier in the year on software companies, but the four I'm going to try to get down on paper are Microsoft, Salesforce, Snowflake, which is the newcomer, and, and possibly the one that will be a more interesting investment, and then Oracle. But then the week after that, my plan is focused on Caterpillar, Deer, and Generac. And I think that Caterpillar and, and Deer, who are doing, you know, significant manufacturing, and, and Generac as well, Generac can't make generators fast enough and are having the stocks been weak because they've been having trouble 
with increases in inventory and pricing and um, losing some of their margin and whatnot. So I think I think we should put off circling back to Tesla until we have some other manufacturing businesses. The, the one company I, I, I think in the remaining time when we're talking about reducing staff that again is in the news or adjusting staff is page four where we, we started off on page four because Netflix had a, you know, a little better result, kind of a reversal in terms of subscribers and cash flow and whatnot. I think that Netflix does have some modest amount of free cash flow. And this is after spending money on content to put up against Netflix, Walt Disney, which is in the news because the CEO has been forced to retire and and the prior CEO, Bob Iger, is, has come back with a two-year contract to try to get things right. Now, Disney, which has that enormous library of, of content and is, is really, I guess, the, uh, other than Amazon Prime, Netflix uh, principal competitor, does not have any free cash flow. And I suppose that's one of the reasons the uh, Disney board decided to act. But the third company in this comparison, and presumably Iger, who did an incredible job running Disney for a dozen years before he retired, will will do good things over for Disney stockholders over the next year or two. But the third company in the comparison on page four is Amazon, where a Jeff Bezos is gone. <laughs> I mean. I guess he probably phones in and he still is the executive chairman of the board, but the new, the new CEO, Jassy is, and I forget Jassy's first name, Andy, I guess it's running it. And, and again, Amazon has fairly high CapEx, but they had been running 30 billion or so of free cash flow, And now there isn't any, and he has announced and is in the process of pulling all kinds of things apart at Amazon to see whether or not there are things that should be happening. And presumably overstaffing would be one of the one of the things he'd be focused on. Once again, with Jason really has more kind of industrial background here, would you Jason, would you expect that 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 Amazon might have the same potential to increase their cash flow? by reducing headcount as as Google has or as Elon Musk uh, experimented Twitter indicates? So how does Amazon look to you? My feeling is they probably don't have as many levers to pull to, to, to reduce their costs. The one thing that they they are reducing in is is their Alexa line of products. So that's that's something that everyone kind of likes to have around, but hasn't been a revenue driver for them. Uh, you know, they, they were expecting people to walk around their house and ask Alexa to order paper towels and order more peanut butter or something, but uh, that hasn't really played out. It, it didn't increase their sales, which they were hoping it would drive more sales on their, you know, their e-commerce platform. So they, they've been reducing headcount in, in that arena, which is kind of disappointing because they're doing a lot of great research on, um, you know, speech to speech translation, speech to text, that kind of stuff with the Alexa platform. So 
it's disappointing that they have to reduce costs there, but you know, it's understandable. I, I, when I'm on the phone with Mike and Jason, or we were in person uh, last week, I, because as an, I'm a happy Amazon stockholder, but not, not so happy about the decline last year. It was about what, you know, decline last year and this year. So it's way off. Uh, it's, uh, it's uh, marked, but you know, way up from my cost. But I keep saying, certainly that 65 billion of CapEx can go back to 30. And uh, Mike and Jason are quick to point out that probably half of the CapEx is Amazon Web Services. And this is for more server farms, more capability to uh, handle their uh, cloud customers. Can consider, I think it's still the case, Netflix runs all their movies and, and series and whatnot that they're sending out. I believe they are, they run a high portion of that through Amazon Web Services. So I think I, I think I remember, and it's probably an out of date number. It might not have been accurate, but once we get to dinner time, kind of between dinner time and lights out, you know, a very high portion of what we're watching streaming and whatnot is coming off Amazon web services. And I think Azure, yeah, Microsoft is, is trying to be competitive there. So I suppose it's the case, I guess turn the mic here, that, that high caps, high capital spending by Amazon web services, by Azure at Microsoft, by Google, uh, by Oracle is who's trying to uh, develop the position it's just something that's going to go on kind of indefinitely in order to handle the uh, amount of traffic and to maintain market share and maintain quality of service. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it, it's going to continue to expand. That number seems really high at Amazon, but you got to remember that's a 35% operating margin business. So at, at Amazon, it's a fantastic business. At Microsoft, it's a very good business. And my understanding is it's not totally clear through the financials at Google, but it seems like it's a slightly less good business at Google. And I guess the fourth would be Oracle. So at some point, maybe we need to compare all of those individually and, and line them up. But assuming Amazon AWS is still committing capital in a in a responsible way because they have pretty good indicators of their increased usage demands. I think that's a fantastic business. And you know, that, and that's the case that a lot of people are saying about Amazon at this price, why it potentially could be a pretty reasonably priced stock because the value of AWS alone may actually be near that of just the AWS uh, of the entire Amazon business. So you kind of get the retail for free. I, I, yeah. With that, with, let's go ahead, Jason. Why don't you wind it up for us? Because we're, we're, this is a Thanksgiving bonus. We're now six minutes <laughs> over our uh, allotted time, but why don't you finish it up? Jason? Yeah, yep. I was just going to add, they've also quietly built maybe the best logistics company in, in the United States in the last couple of years too. And I'm, I'm not convinced that's valued in the stock as well. They've, they have a fleet of aircraft. They have the best last mile delivery system. It's, it's really remarkable what they've built in the last three or four years. I good with that. Everyone have a good weekend. We'll be back uh, next Wednesday. I, I would, 
I was horrified to find that Jason and Mike have this thing on Spotify, and Jason and Mike's partnership is called Top Mark, which, of course, for sailors listening in, that's the windward mark. You will not have trouble with the what you type in on Spotify because it's telltale, which, of course, for the non-sailors, those are the streamers you put on the jib to figure out whether you're high or low when you're sailing to windward. I uh, talked to Mike this morning. Apparently, there's, I don't know, 30, 40 hours up there. So uh, if you have a long drive someplace and you've gotten tired of listening to uh, music or something, you could always turn on Telltales on Spotify. And I would never do it. I'd be afraid of hearing things that we said, you know, weeks or months ago that turned out to be baloney. But for the rest of you, it's up there on Spotify. And with that, everyone stay well and stay healthy. And uh, we'll talk next Wednesday. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information, and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.